is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Over the years, there have been many format and console wars, including Nintendo versus Sega, PlayStation versus Xbox, Apple versus Android. But there was one full-fledged format war that ruled them all. Years before we had to decide between streaming the latest video or taking it home on DVD or Blu-ray, a format war between Sony's Betamax and JVC's VHS began. The battle lasted for more than a decade, with neither Betamax nor VHS giving up. Bill Hammack is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at the University of Illinois. He is known as the engineer guy, as the creator and host of his popular YouTube channel explaining the engineering of everyday objects. In 1976, Sony introduced the Betamax video cassette recorder. It catalyzed the on-demand of today by allowing users to record TV shows, and the machine ignited the first new media intellectual property battle. In only a decade, this revolutionary machine disappeared, beaten by JVC's VHS cassette recorder. Here's Bill Engineer Guy Hammock telling the story of how Betamax was defeated by the VHS tape. This mighty machine sparked a revolution in our use of media. It's a Sony Betamax video cassette recorder from 1979. This monster weighs about 36 pounds. The engineer in me finds it fascinating. There's nothing digital. It's a truly analog machine. All moving pieces and parts. You're obviously a man who's having troubles at home. You're constantly fighting with your family over what TV shows to watch. Well, fortunately, you're looking at a simple solution to your problems. Sony Betamax. Early adopters of the Betamax used it to record television shows, a revolutionary concept at the time, because prior to the Betamax, you had to watch a show when it was broadcast. It threatened the entertainment industry so much that in 1979, they argued that recording television shows at home infringed on their copyright. It all came to a head in a Supreme Court case, Sony Corporation of America versus Universal City Studios, where five justices allowed home recording. The Sony Betamax. Its only purpose is to serve you. Although Sony won this court battle, they ultimately lost out to a machine that used this size tape. This is a VHS recorder made by Sony's great rival, JVC. Both machines solve the same problem, how to store information compactly on a tape. Here's the brilliant innovation used by both machines. The machine grabs the tape, drags it forward as the silver drum starts to spin rapidly. The drum has two electromagnets called heads arranged on opposite sides of the drum that read the magnetic information on the tape. That rotating head allowed for a compact recorder. In many previous recorders, the magnetic heads didn't move, only the tape. Because there was a limit to how fast the tape could move, it took a lot of tape, about a seven inch reel to record an hour, which meant that a movie would need two seven inch reels inside a cassette. So the rotating heads dramatically reduced the amount of tape needed, reducing the size to where it could be easily held in a cassette. So if the machines are so similar, why did Betamax lose to JVC? 
Many thought the Betamax machine would win. It had the better image quality, and the Betamax is decidedly better built. Compare ejecting a tape on the Betamax to the VHS. First, watch the Betamax. Note how smooth it is, and then watch the VHS. That's abrupt and will wear out the mechanism, yet to my engineer's eye, the VHS was the better solution. First, the VHS was lighter than the Betamax, 29.5 pounds compared to 36 pounds for this Betamax machine. That's a huge difference for a mass manufactured object. It impacts everything from material costs to assembly time to shipping costs. So at the low end of the market, the VHS machines were cheaper than Sony's Betamax. Second, the earliest Betamax tapes played for only one hour, VHS played for two hours, enough time for a movie. Marty, shh, you'll scare the fish. But we're missing the big football Relax. game. Relax, my VHS home video recorder is taping it right now. Terrific. Watch. Terrific. But suppose it's over three hours. Relax. Next Panasonic VHS tapes up to four hours of sports, movie specials on one cassette. Wow. This VHS is for me. You caught the whole game. Best catch of the day. Yeah. VHS, the four-hour system from Panasonic and other leading companies. The ultimate killer, though, was the rental market. Well, Betamax focused its ads and energies on time shifting. Their ads featured headlines like, watch whatever, whenever. Well, JVC, the maker of the VHS system, created relationships with the nascent video rental industry. When this market grew, VHS dominated in titles. And when you could for a while find both formats, eventually retailers began giving shelf space to the slightly more dominant brand, which then dominated even more. So. The Betamax versus VHS dispels the notion that simply being first to market is the most important issue. It reminds us that technical excellence in one area isn't enough, here the superior picture quality of Betamax, but that all technical aspects matter. For any mass manufactured object, the winner is usually the one that is just good enough. I'm Bill Hammack, The Engineer Guy. And that is so true, just good enough often does it. And what a terrific story, and all of us were old enough to remember these days. My goodness, just the simple idea that you could tape a show and watch it later. For anyone under the age of 35, this is nonsense to you. You can't even imagine a world where you don't get to watch what you want, where you want, and when you want. But back in the day, there were three channels, three, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And there was a PBS station, and if you held the rabbit ears up to the satellite, you could maybe get a little better picture. And it all turned off at the end of the night with the national anthem. And then the, it was just a gray screen. Hard to imagine what progress in this great country as it relates to content and the tremendous amount of creativity that's been unleashed by technology for artists to get directly to an audience. The story, the battle of Betamax versus VHS. And VHS, the good enough winner. And very special thanks to Bill Hammock, a.k.a. Engineer Guy, for sharing this story with us here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of a father from Austin, Texas, named Jeff Sandifer. Our two boys were transitioning from Montessori, where they had great freedom. Maria Montessori was an original pioneer who believed that children could do more than we ever imagined. And so she set up a system that was more real world, gave children freedom with limits and responsibility, and treated them more like special beings with great potential than wards of the state. It's very different than sitting in a classroom and having a teacher talk at you. Montessorians tend to be in the classroom doing something that matters. So they've been in that environment, but it's time to move them into traditional school. So I go to see the very best teacher at the very best school where our daughter went for middle school. And I said, when should we transition the boys to traditional school? And he just snapped and said, once they've had the freedom like that, they won't like being chained to a desk for eight hours a day. And so without even thinking, I just reacted and I said, well, I don't blame them. And this is a very tall man, I won't out who it was, but you know, very well-respected. And he stood there for the longest time looking at the ground. He didn't say anything. And I thought, well, gosh, I've offended him. And then he looked up and he had tears in his eyes and he said very quietly, I don't blame them either. And he shook his head. And so I went home that day and I told Laura, I know what kind of teacher he is. I got the message. We're either going to homeschool or we're going to start a school because our boys aren't going to traditional school. We're not going to do that. They're not going to be chained to a desk. So we started with seven young people in a small rented house, two of them being our children. And that was the start of Acton Academy. An academy guided by four principles. The questions that students will ask, who am I? What is it that I can do and what must I master? Because I want to be really good at something. Who will affirm me and hold me accountable? Got to have a community and people to hold me accountable. And then the third one, how do I prove what I can do? It could be a credential that has value or it can be a project I've done or it can be a portfolio, but I want to have proof. And so our four metaphors were, who am I? The hero's journey, the belief that every child is put on this earth to find a calling that will change the world. The hero's journey story, of course, is I think embedded deep inside our souls. It's a reason Star Wars works. It's a reason The Lion King works. It's that longing in human beings to go out and do something that matters. And then, of course, while the hero's in search of the grail, the lesson always is it's not whether they find the grail or not. It's how the hero changes in the process. So it's this idea of through challenge and struggle, we find out more about ourselves and our gifts. And in that struggle, along with fellow travelers and people you're walking with, you develop deep relationships and a community. And so I just think the hero's journey story is as old as time. And I think what makes our place unusual, if not unique, is everybody there believes every person there is going to change the world. When you talk about changing the world, people often uh, mistake it for saying, well, you have to be prime minister or president or the head of Google. And so we make it very clear early that you could be someone running uh, small dry cleaners with three employees and have a thousand people show up at your funeral because every day you treated customers, employees with respect and did things in the community and you absolutely changed the world in a profound way. The what skills do I need to learn and what do I need to master, that's the beauty of the internet and Khan Academy. 
If you haven't used it yet, Khan Academy is a pretty cool place that lives on the internet. It enables you to learn just about anything at your own pace and from the best people in their fields like Sal Khan for free. Almost 12 million people do just this monthly, including innovative schools like Acton Academy. We've never taught a minute of math or reading or writing or anything. No adult has ever taught anything in the Acton Studios, ever, ever. Now, Sal Khan has come in remotely, but no adult in authority, I should say, has ever taught. You go find your own answers. People can move on their own pace in certain things when you can. I can watch it 23 times if I have to. So it's putting someone like Sal Khan on demand repeatedly over and over again. That's better than Mr. Coonrod, rest his soul, who taught me algebra, because I, I could only listen to him lecture once and we all had to be on the same page. He may not be the best teacher. And in fact, he may be the best teacher for you, but I don't like his voice. Well, okay, well then we'll go find someone. So there are lots of other great experts out there. They're terrific role models. And the other part is it, you having choices and having to take responsibility for your learning, if you'll do that, you can learn anything. And so this requires you to do that, and you can't blame me for not teaching you well or not inspiring you. It doesn't become personal. The personal thing is you set your goals and you reach them. There's a famous kind of uh, story that this teacher stood up at one meeting and said, we've taught the children, we've taught the children, they just haven't learned anything, blaming the children. And then a voice from the back of the room said, how do you define the verb teach in that last sentence? And so people can learn things with no teacher. Now, do I want a role model? Do I want an expert? Absolutely, adults have a role, but you don't have to teach me in this world. I can learn. And someone can stand up and teach and pontificate and talk, and the people in the room learn nothing. So we really are centered around learning, learning driven by the people who are gonna become heroes, but the one thing we don't have is a lot of adult authority. Our students write beautifully. If you start out lecturing somebody about grammar, they will hate to write. If you just get them loving to write, you can clean up the grammar quickly. If you want to fix grammar, grammar is easy. And once you learn the rules, everybody breaks them anyway on purpose. I mean, Bill Buckley used to always you know, say, I'll put my commas anywhere I damn well want to. But they learn to write beautifully. The reason is they like to critique each other. So no adult grades anything at our school. The young people grade everything. We try to remove the adults from authority, or let's say from dictatorial authority, and put them in their proper role as maybe game makers. Because if I invite you to play tennis, we're gonna to agree to a set of rules. It's not anarchy. Uh, we're gonna to to decide what the trophy might look like, and we're gonna engage in a tennis game. So we create games, invite people into play, so if I give you a challenge you think matters for your why, three or four or one recipe or process or series of steps, you can call it our algorithm, in order to how to make that happen, and let's throw in some squads and people to work with, that's a great way to learn. And at the end of it, you can actually do something. For example, right now we're doing a cooking and chemistry quest. We're learning deep lessons about chemistry. At the same time, they're learning how to cook. At the end of all that, there'll be a public exhibition, as there always is, and we'll recreate the TV show Chopped. Have you ever seen it? So when, when you have a certain number of ingredients a certain amount of time, the teams will be cooking things for the audience, but they'll have a limited time and money for ingredients. The only way they can earn more is by getting on stage, pulling a question out of the hat about chemistry, 
answering it correctly, and relating it to what they're cooking at the moment. So to be able to do that, you have to have very deep knowledge of chemistry, not memorize formulas. That would buy your team a little more time and a few more ingredients as you compete to learn how to cook. And so anyway, that whole idea of why am I here, and then what skills do I need to learn, cooking's probably a pretty important one, then what am I gonna master? I mean, everyone's got a gift. What is your gift? Because great gifts, when you master them, bring opportunities to you. And so as you become better at something in a domain, as you have a deliberate practice where you work hard, whether it's karate or running or cooking to be good at something, great opportunities come to you. Now, that's all easy to say, it's hard to do. That's why you need people to hold you accountable, to affirm and celebrate you. And this is where, you know, traditional teachers and the great ones, you, you probably remember two teachers from your lifetime, or three or four that really mattered. If you think hard enough about it, it probably wasn't that they taught you algebra. Mr. Coonrod taught me algebra. He was a coach. Now, he was a decent algebra teacher, and I learned algebra, but what really mattered was Mr. Coonrod believed in me. He affirmed me. And so we remember great teachers because they affirm, but anyone can affirm you. They don't have to know algebra. They have to know you. And my goodness, not a lot of adult authority around that dictatorial adult authority and school centered around learning. Sign me up. I want a do-over on all of my public education because I was chained to the desk and I felt like it. And that was back in the 1970s. I can't imagine what young kids are feeling like today with all this technology. Well, I know I have a 14-year-old and she feels chained to a desk and she's bored out of her mind at least half the day, every day. And we've got good public schools. And I love the four questions that Jeff asked because I think they're just so important. Who am I? What is it I can do? And what must I master? By the way, that's where real self-esteem will come from. Mastery of something, being good at something. Three, who will hold me accountable? I don't think there's a lot of that happening many places with young people in this country. And last, how do I prove what I can do? And it's not how I feel, right? How do I prove what I can do? How can I measure it? When we come back, more with Jeff Sanifer's story, and by the way, his bride, Laura, and the story of Acton Academy here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and Jeff Sanifer's story of being unsatisfied with the current education system and he and his wife starting their own school called the Acton Academy. America became the strongest, most powerful, fairest country on the face of the earth before we ever had an organized school system. We had one-room schoolhouses where you learned basically character education, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And in many ways, acting is a return to the multi-age, one-room schoolhouse where you learn the basics in community. Then, back in those days, you would then take an apprenticeship. Now, interestingly, you also would often get seconded out before your apprenticeship age to another family. 
down the street. And, and I don't, here's my guess as to why, it's because no one listens to their parents, but you will listen to your favorite uncle. And so people actually had contracts where you would send your kids to go live with another family. And of course the towns and cities were small then, and they would send their kids to you for character education, and then you go to one-room schoolhouses, and then about age 13, you get an apprenticeship. You learn to master a skill underneath someone who affirmed you and held you accountable, and you learn to trade. Now, that made America, because it wasn't until the late 1800s we had any kind of organized school systems. Those were organized around the Prussian model, around basically a military model, they were encouraged by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, not because they were evil robber barons, but because they worried about civil unrest from waves of immigrants coming in. Now, whether that was true or not, they should have been worried, or it was a fear of the other, we don't know. But you were having lots of people come that you wanted to have become factory workers and to have a civil society, and these school systems were a way to train them. Once you understand that the early school systems were to train factory workers, long rows of industrial lockers, bells ringing every 45 minutes, the command, listen to me, look up here, kind of rote memorization and routine, all makes sense. So it wasn't an evil, stupid system. It was a way to equip people for the jobs and lives that they were gonna at least live at the turn of the 19th century when you had massive industrialization going on in the Industrial Revolution. Again, I'm not trying to cast aspersion on the Rockefellers, but, but if you're running a factory, you want people in those days particularly to do what you're asking them to do routinely over and over and over again. You don't have robots with AI to, to go pick things off of shelves or to make cars or to make what you're making. So they wanted people who would do what they wanted. So we have a long discussion about that and whether it worked, but, but it doesn't make sense today. When you look out on the world, FedEx usually beats the post office. And I think in this case, there's people working very hard inside a bureaucratic institution, but Hayek had it right, that you want to have as few bureaucracies as necessary reserved for those things that bureaucracies serve well. Like the legal system, the military, I mean, you probably need a bureaucracy for a lot of that. You don't want people paying for their own private or sergeant. But in most things, the market works better. Acton Academy students starting in middle school, one of the badges you have to earn to go to Launchpad. Badges is Acton's term for credentialing, and Launchpad is their term for high school. You don't have to earn the badge. You, you can choose whatever you want, but you won't ever go to our Launchpad without the apprenticeship badge. So you have to start at your first year of middle school doing apprenticeships. You choose the apprenticeship. You have to go get the apprenticeship. We don't bring people into you. You have to deliver on your promises and get a rating. So I can write an email that says, Alex, you're my hero because, and genuinely mean it, because you're the person I want to become. Will you give me five minutes for a phone call to explain our apprenticeship program? Didn't ask you for a job, I asked you for five minutes. In the phone call, I'm only taking five minutes, I'm gonna explain how it works and ask if I can come see you in person. Then I'm gonna go in person and I'm going to say, Alex, you've heard about the program. I've told you, I'm going to promise you, I'm going to show up early. I'm going to work late. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. And I will pass this on. Will you give me a chance? Just one day. Will you give me one chance to prove myself? Now, how many people say no to a 13-year-old who genuinely does that? Almost zero. 
when someone writes and they sincerely say, I want to become you, you're my hero because, and they know all about you, and I'll show up early, work late, and do whatever you ask me, who's not going to say yes to that? If, it's, if the person's serious about it, that's the kind of email you wait to, to hear. I remember one story, we had this one young person, she was 14 at the time, so she'd had a couple of apprenticeships, and she wanted to be a lawyer. So she went and pitched this law firm, and the lady, you know, emailed us. We normally don't get involved, but she emailed us and said, look, I, you know, we're a law firm. We're not about to, to, to give her any kind of apprenticeship, and we certainly wouldn't pay her, and we're not, you know, but, but it's the most amazing letter I've ever seen. She's incredible. She's already taken a law course from UPenn online, and she's read all these books about the law, and she's read Bastiat, and she, so I'm at least going to meet her, but I just wanted you to know because we're worried about the legal side of whether we can even meet her. We said, okay, well, her parents have already signed off as part of our process, you can meet her. The lady calls us and said, okay, I'm gonna give her an apprenticeship. I know I said I wouldn't, and I know she's only 14, but I, got it, but I can't pay her. I said, look, that's up to you. We don't get involved in that. Okay. After about her first week, you know, okay, I just wanted to email and let you know we are gonna start paying her, but she will never get a job offer here. Well, six weeks later, at the end of the apprenticeship, she had a job offer at 14 to work for the law firm. She'd been to see clients, she'd been to court, and she was exceptional. She was incredible. And since she's gone on to college and gotten all these scholarships, we didn't make her, she made herself. Decided the law wasn't her thing right after this apprenticeship. But that story of going out and doing something I think I care about goes on a hundred times a year at Acton. I was with one of our young people, this was about six months ago, and I said, hey, uh, Derek, uh, what have you been doing lately? Because I, I just tracked up a conversation walking across the campus. He goes, well, I got an apprenticeship. And I said, cool, who are you working for? And he said, Carl Rove. President George W. Bush's political strategist. And I said, you're working for Carl Rove? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, did your parents know Carl Rove? And he goes, no, no, I just wrote him the email we're supposed to, and I pitched him. I'm helping him write his new book, and it's called, like, The Seven Most Important Decisions a President's Made. He goes, so I'm helping him research it. And I said, so because you like politics and writing, you convinced Carl Rove to hire you. He goes, yeah. I mean, just to him, that was just like, he didn't even, you know, it's like, do you know who Carl Rove is? I was wondering, when do they do all these apprenticeships given the school day? Well, so it's interesting. So our campus doesn't take attendance. And, you know, you, you, as long as you're doing your badges and your parents say it's okay, you can come and go a lot, particularly in high school. You, you can be off doing something most of the time if you want to. But we never know about it until the badge is submitted. And by the way, they, these employers hold them to the contract. You do have to show, you know, if you, if you show up late or you don't, we hear about it. And there's a whole rating system that the young person knows it's going to be publicly rated at the end and everyone's going to see whether they held it because that reflects on acting. By the time they're out of high school, which we call Launchpad, you know, they've probably had seven apprenticeships with reference letters. So you think a college looks at those? There's your proof of what I can do. And my goodness, where is there an Acton Academy nearby is what you're thinking, right? And again, we are not slamming public school teachers, public schools. I think what Jeff said, I think many public school teachers are nodding in agreement with. More flexibility, more power and control over their classrooms. Look, my dad was a school teacher his whole life and a superintendent of schools in a public school. And he was talking about this then, and he was begging and urging for new ways to think about how to think about educating kids. Because again, it was Jeff is dead right. 
the industrial model had its place and it had its time. We were training masses, armies of, of factory workers. And it made sense the way we did things. But the way we're doing things now, still doing them mostly the same, makes no sense. And my goodness, six, seven internships. Some kids working their way into law firms and getting paid at the age of 14 to do work. You can't make this stuff up, folks. And it's what happens when you don't infantilize children and treat them as young agents of change for their own lives and their own growth. When we come back, we continue with Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. continue with our American stories and we return to Jeff Sandifer and the final portion of this remarkable story on his school, the Acton Academy. Education has a very bad habit of talking about price and cost as if they were the same thing, which they are if you never make any money, right? And we're not-for-profit. That doesn't mean we can't generate surplus. So everything we do in a not-for-profit world, we hope generates surplus doesn't come back to us, we don't take any money out of it, we can reinvest it in something else. So with that distinction, our tuition is still ten dollars or $11,000 a year. And Laura keeps saying, well, our costs are down below $4,000. Why don't we just charge everyone $4,000? Now, of course, if our parents are listening to this, they're going, that'd be great. I'm like, look, I paid $30,000 for our daughter to go to an inferior school, so everyone's getting a bargain. I wish we'd start out pricing it at twenty. dollars We can always offer people scholarships, but why wouldn't I price what the market will bear? So, Acton Academy's range in price. Oh yeah, there's more than one of these Acton Academies out there, as you're soon to hear about. From about $3,000 a year in tuition, to last I checked, about $30,000. Our pro forma cost now, we can get to easily $4,000. Uh, we're pretty sure with a really nice campus, we can get down to $2,500 a year. If you factor in the apprenticeship income that middle schoolers and high schoolers can earn, and you assume that's an offset to tuition, we don't take that money, but a family could use that, we can get the cost pretty close to zero. Pretty close to zero. For some context on this, elite private schools cost between twenty dollars to $50,000 per year. D.C. public schools spend $28,000 per child. And the nationwide average for public schools is almost $12,000. Remember, this started out with seven young people. We weren't even, we wouldn't even have dreamed we really would have a full elementary studio, much less a middle school and a high school. The idea that there would be another acting academy would have never occurred to us and was a pure accident. Talk about getting lucky. So this is, you know, you're trying experiments and good things are happening. Then we had two, then we had three, and then we said, you know, maybe if we had 10, we're learning so much more from the other Actons. They're already ahead of us, and so we're, we're practicing positive deviance. We're observing the things that work and sharing them and adopting them. Maybe we should have 10. And then we started to try to go from three to six or eight, all, suddenly things exploded. Uh, now we're, it's hard for me to keep count because it changes quickly, where it's something around 150 
all sharing ideas every single day. And there's an owner's forum where, as we've been sitting here, I've probably gotten three ideas from around the world that someone's tried, and we all adapt them. It's amazing how much Acton Academies look like each other, but if you come back six months later, how different they are. Because everyone's adopting new best practices on the fly. So the model's always changing. And this isn't the only feedback loop. There are feedback loops everywhere, but probably the most important one for us is we make a series of promises to our parents. Every Acton Academy makes the same promises. Your child will be on a hero's journey, very simple but fundamental belief system promises. And then we ask every parent and every child every week, how are we doing? What's our net promoter score? Would you recommend this place to a trusted friend? One to 10 scale. And we live or die based on those ratings and all the ratings and all the comments are anonymous, but published. And you know, just like the internet, you get some cranky people. You get some people who are probably poorly selected customers and eventually you know, will select out of the system. So it's painful when 90% of your customers are happy and 10% aren't. But we have very clear feedback, and it's shared in the community, and every Acton Academy in the world lives by that same standard. You, know, you talk about accreditation, which is a whole, you know, another topic of how nonsensical it is. Well, we have the best accreditation in the world. We publicly publish our customer satisfaction ratings. And you can go look them up, and you can actually see what the customers are saying. That's our ultimate quality control. I asked Jeff, does any other school in the world do this to have 100% of your customers rating you and posting it for everyone to see? I've never heard of this before. I don't know. Um, I will say that we've had several hundred people come and ask us for tours, school officials and educators. Uh, we absolutely you know, want to serve people, but remember we only have a couple adults on campus. And they're, you know, they're, for safety and everything else, they're busy. And so we don't have a big staff to tour people around, so we, we can't do that. What I do say every time I'm asked is, we would love to have you and your faculty come. Be delighted. However, nothing we do will work without this feedback loop. So anything we can share with you won't work. As soon as you have surveyed your community for six months every week and publish the results of their satisfaction, we will give you every single thing we have. All of it. We'll copy the database and hand it to you. Got to do it first. How many tours have we given? Zero. Zero. So I don't know if anyone else is doing it. I can tell you it's a very humane way that we don't give a lot of tours. And so the reason we can expand so fast is if you become an acting owner, you put your own children in the school, and you agree to make promises and be held accountable, what are the odds you're going to build a really bad school? <laughs> Not much. Juan Bonifaci, my wonderful former student who runs Acton Academy Guatemala, said, we just did this terrific quest. And I said, yeah, you know, our quests are often 100 pages long. They're so hard for us to write. And he set up these games. He goes, oh, ours took like five minutes. Said, five minutes? Uh, he goes, yeah. We put, uh, we took duct tape and we put a little three foot by three foot box on the floor. We duct taped out a box on the floor like we could stand in. And we said, in six weeks, you will be standing in this square for no more than 10 minutes and no less than eight. You will pick a hero, you will deliver a speech, 
in your hero's voice that you write yourself. So let's imagine Churchill, 1941, standing on a specific street corner in London. And you're going to get now, if you speak less than eight minutes, you're just going to stand there. If you speak more than 10 minutes, the hook's coming out at 10 minutes. So you've got eight to 10 minutes. Good luck. That's all. This is middle school. That's all the instruction they gave them. So, you know, the, the, the six weeks came. There's no help. But can you learn how to give a speech when you look at stuff on the Internet? Sure. There's, some, there's, a, there's a website called Six Minutes to Speaking or something. It's just so they brought back all these great resources for how to learn to give a speech. They worked hard and videoed their speeches and learned, and they gave these amazing speeches to a room full of 100 people. Now, the flip side of that, we had one young man that came in. He was new to the high school. He wore a hoodie. He looked like, you know, he might be one of those people you would be worried about at your school for violence. He wasn't that way, but it looked like that. He signed up for this. He stood up in front of the room and he froze. And he had to stand there for eight minutes without saying anything. And you just think about how long eight minutes is. We couldn't rescue him. We had to let it happen. He was so brave that he asked for a chance to do it again to a smaller group a week later. So people came to see it the second time. He froze the second time. He's now got this great job in high tech. He's graduated from acting, but he told me about a year ago that the most important decision he ever made in his life was after that second time. He said, I'm either going to leave here or I'm going to give that speech. And he went back and worked on it and he came back a third time and he got up and he wasn't, you know, terrific, but he stood there for eight minutes and he gave his talk. And he said, that moment changed my life. That's the moment I look back to that changed my life forever. And I'll end on this because I think Sager's story and that simple having to actually do something for real that's a skill that's going to matter in your life reminds me of the last time we had a new orientation meeting for new owners last month. And we normally have parents, but one parent was a parent educator who had been in education for years and wanted to build an acting for his family. I said, what have you learned from being here? Because you wanted to come and see if it was for real and if you could do it. And he said, it's been one of the most sobering experiences of my life. It's as if all my life I had studied tigers in a zoo and I thought I knew tigers. And now I've seen a tiger in the wild and I've seen how magnificent the creatures are. And I realize that I know nothing. So what we're all about is having the tigers in the wild in the kind of civil society that they should be living in as human beings. And when you do that, it is absolutely extraordinary what young people do. They are capable of far more than you have ever imagined. They dumb themselves down for adults. They submit to arbitrary authority of force to, but then they are living like tigers in a cage. And tigers were not meant to be raised in cages. And what a story. And again, that's Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. And you can learn more at actonacademy.org. And he's not trying to, like, grow more schools. He doesn't have a growth plan. They're just growing because you were listening to a man with deep convictions about how kids can be educated in the 21st century and how families can be agents for change on the education front. And that's what's happening all over this country. I mean, it was remarkable to hear him talk about 
how they could get the cost down to under 4000 and down to even 2500 And then if the young person is interning, bring the cost of education to zero while teaching young people how to be young adults of character and substance, going and knocking on a door and asking for an internship. Really remarkable. And I loved hearing the story about that young man who had to just perform that speech for eight minutes and him saying that the most important decision he ever made in his life was coming back that third time and giving his speech. And my goodness, tigers are not meant to be raised in cages. Jeff is right. Jeff Sandifer's story, his bride's story, Laura, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and for the hour, we're going to tell a great story about our past, about an historical figure you may know, but not enough about, and that's Bat Masterson. And as always, our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And by the way, go to hillsdale.edu to sign up for their terrific and free online courses. Old West lawman Bat Masterson was as well known in his lifetime as celebrities are today. To bat, gunslingers were hoodlums who killed for fun. He used guns to enforce the law or defend a friend. In the end, he'd achieved a feat almost none of the Old West legends had attained. He lived to see an old age. Here to tell the story of Bat Masterson is Roger McGrath. McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, McGrath is a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. One of the most widely traveled and greatest characters of the Old West was Bat Masterson. His first taste of the frontier came as a buffalo hunter on the high plains in the early 1870s when he was still a teenager. He took part in the famous Battle of Adobe Walls. He served as a scout for the U.S. Army pursuing Indian war parties. He was sheriff of Ford County, which included Dodge City during the heyday of the cattle town. He was with the Earps in Tombstone, Arizona for a time. He served as the Marshal of Trinidad, Colorado. He was a gunfighter and professional gambler, and eventually a sports promoter and journalist. Here's Texas State Historian Bill O'Neill also Dodge City historian and narrator of the Wild West podcast, Brad Smalley. There was a U.S. postal stamp series that was aptly named. It was called Legends of the West. Well, Legends of the West had all kinds of people, like Wild Bill Hickok and Annie Oakley, 20 of them, in fact, and one of them was Bat Masterson on a 29-cent stamp. (laughs) Bat Masterson was indeed a legend of the West. Uh, when you mention Bat Masterson, at least, to the average person, uh, by and large, the image that comes to mind is really that of Gene Barry from the 1950s TV show. Uh, you know, puff tie, derby hat, silver tip cane, just sort of walking the West being Bat Masterson. Without really any specifics. Uh, Canadian-born, farmed in, in uh, New York, Iowa, He was about 17, 18 years old when the family moved to Kansas. Uh, They lived around Wichita, 
uh, or very near to Wichita, Kansas, for about a year before the two oldest brothers, uh, Bat and the oldest Masterson, uh, his older brother Ed, uh, headed west really to seek adventure. Bat and Ed are proficient with firearms before they start buffalo hunting, but they now become expert marksmen with the Sharps rifle, dropping buffalo at distances of 500 yards or more. The town they haul the heights to is Dodge City, which will be a buffalo town for a decade before it becomes a cattle town. Dodge City will be called the queen of the cattle towns and have a reputation for gunfights and rough characters. But it is rougher and more violent in its buffalo days. It's in Dodge City that Bat begins making his name well known. Uh, at that time, in the summer of 1872, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad was in western Kansas, and Ed and Bat were hired uh, by subcontractor Raymond Ritter to help grade four miles of railroad track between Fort Dodge and the, uh, the small settlement, a uh, little boom town that was to be known as Dodge City. Well, Mr. Ritter skipped out on paying uh, the Masterson brothers and probably the entire crew. The debt is nearly a year old when word reaches Dodge City that Ritter is a passenger on a train that will be stopping at Dodge. Bat heads to the station with a dozen or more men following him who are eager to watch what unfolds. Those in the crowd say Bat's pale blue eyes are ice cold. When the train grinds to a halt, Bat springs aboard and enters the passenger car. Minutes later, he's holding Ritter at gunpoint on the train's rear platform. Ritter yells out that he's being robbed. Bat tells him to produce the money or he's dead. Ritter pleads that he doesn't have it on his person, but that it's in his valise back in the car and he'll have to go back to retrieve it. Bat doesn't fall for the trick, and as Henry Raymond, who is standing below in the crowd, get the valise. Raymond quickly returns with the valise, and Bat has Ritter open it and count out the $300 owed them from several thousand dollars in the bag. With that, Bat allows Ritter to go back into the passenger car. Bat then invites all those in the crowd to follow him to Kelly's saloon so he can treat them to drinks. Bat is only 19 years old, but his coolness and determination impresses everyone. Here's the owner of Legends of America, Kathy Alexander. Bat Masterson and the other buffalo hunters that were working in the Dodge City area, it didn't take long before they pretty much killed all of the buffalo in the area. But they got wind of the fact that in the Texas Panhandle, they still roamed large and free. The Texas Panhandle was ruled by the Comanches and the Kiowa Indians. So there was a risk, but he and several others just couldn't resist. They set up a camp about 150 miles southwest of Dodge City, near the ruins of an old trading post known as Adobe Walls. The camp grows day by day. A big corral is built with a storehouse made of sod. Jim Hanrahan, a big genial Irish immigrant, builds a saloon out of sod and logs. Tom O'Keefe, another Irishman, fashions a crude blacksmith shop. 
Charlie Rath builds a general store out of sod and logs. Bill Oles and his wife Hannah, the only woman in the camp, open a restaurant in the rear of Rath's store. They are entirely unaware that on the Comanche Reservation in western Oklahoma, Ishitai, a medicine man, is calling for a war of extermination against the whites. He says he talks with the Great Spirit, and the Great Spirit tells him he will restore dead warriors to life, and that all warriors will now have magical protection against the bullets of the whites. Ishitai's message spreads to Kiowa, Arapaho, and Cheyenne on nearby reservations, and soon Ishitai has a large following. During June, warrior bands of Comanche, Kiowa, Arapaho, and Cheyenne bolt their reservations and head for the Texas Panhandle. Ishitai is riding along with them. In Texas, they join forces with Quana Parker, the chief of the Quahati Band of Comanche, which has never been on a reservation. Quana Parker is the son of a Comanche chief and a kidnapped white girl. Cynthia Ann Parker. Quana Parker assumes command of the force of Indian warriors, about 700 strong. In mid-June, reports begin arriving at Adobe Wall's camp that whites here and there in the panhandle have been killed and scalped and their bodies mutilated. Some of the hunters decide it's time to pack up their wagons and head for Dodge City, but most decide to stay. Right at sunrise in the morning of June 27th, hundreds of Indian warriors sweep down on the camp. Both the Indians and their horses streaked in war paint. Some are firing their rifles, others are leveling their lances. The whites race inside whichever sod structure is nearest. Bat Masterson and nine others are in Hanrahan's saloon. A dozen more are in the storehouse and six in the general store, including the one woman, Hannah Oles. Two teamsters who are sleeping in their wagons are killed in the initial Indian assault. Since they outnumber the whites 25 to one, the Indians think they will make quick work of the whites at the camp. However, the Indians have picked on the wrong guys. Sharp's rifles begin to crack, and Indians begin to fall from their horses at great distances. In the two hours of fighting, only one more white, Billy Tyler, is killed in addition to the two Teamsters caught in their wagons. In the immediate vicinity of the camp are the bodies of 15 Indians. The medicine man, Ishitai, wearing nothing but body paint, watched the battle from a safe distance. The Indians remain in the area for two more days, but stay out of rifle range. On the third day, a band of them is stationed on a rise about a mile away. They are gesturing and taunting the whites. Billy Dixon decides to take a shot with a Sharps rifle. He reckons wind and elevation and squeezes off around. A brief moment later, an Indian tumbles from his horse. The other Indians are so unnerved by the long-distance shot, they whirl their horses about and gallop off. The distance of the shot is later measured at 1,538 yards. 
about nine-tenths of a mile. Here again is Brad Smalley. People still uh, talk about that for uh, uh, years, years to come. Uh, really cemented Billy Dixon's fame on the frontier as if he wasn't already famous enough by that point. Dixon becomes famous for the shot, but he himself is effusive in his praise of the youngest of the buffalo hunters in the fight. Bat Masterson should be remembered for the valor that marked his conduct, says Dixon. He was a good shot and not afraid. Following the Battle of Adobe Walls, Bat serves as a U.S. Army scout with Colonel Nelson Miles tracking down Indian war parties. Here's Tom Clavin, the author of Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West. His most famous adventure as a scout uh, later became a basis, not the only one, but a basis for the famous film The Searchers, directed by John Ford and starring John Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter, and a young Natalie Wood. Uh, there was a, a, a German family that was crossing Kansas, heading for Colorado, and they were attacked by Indians. Uh, the parents were killed. There were four daughters who were kidnapped. And soon after the kidnapping, the Indians divided into two separate bands, each taking two daughters, and off they went. Uh, Bat was one of the more prominent and eventually was the leader of a contingent of army scouts who vowed to get these girls back. And they tracked down one of the bands and without too much trouble found the girls and returned them to family members. But the other band was really hard to find. It took months and months and months of Bat searching in all kinds of weather until he finally found the Indians, who by then were rather starving, and the girls themselves had almost starved to death. Uh, Bat rode into camp. He rode in unarmed uh, because his goal was to not put the girls in danger, even though he himself was in great danger. But he went in unarmed and told the, worked out a deal with the Indians to provide them food if, in exchange for the girls, which was what was negotiated and successfully concluded. Uh, Bat retrieved the girls, um, returned them to their uh, family, and it was one of his more well-known adventures. And like I say, it became one basis for the film The Searchers, which is the story of Ethan Edwards and his search for his niece who had been kidnapped by Indians after her family had been killed. Let's go home, Debbie. The Army's relentless pursuit of the Indians during the summer and fall of 1874 puts an end to Indian depredations for the time being. Throughout this time, he learned about just about every trail, hideaway in the entire southern plains from the Panhandle of Texas all the way up through southwest Kansas. Uh, he knew his way around, which would serve him very well in later years as a lawman, in which he became very adept at tracking down horse thieves. Uh, he knew all the hidey holes and places that they could gather, uh, mostly because of this time. Bat's first recorded gunfight occurs in the Lady Gay Dance Hall in Sweetwater, Texas, on a night late in January 1876. Bat is with Molly Brennan when a soldier from a nearby post, Corporal Melvin King, confronts them in a rage. King was not only wounded by his uh, loss to Bat at the poker table, he was severely wounded by his jealousy when he saw the girl that, that he was after hanging on to his newfound rival. Jealousy overtook him. He stormed through the door, pulled his gun, and started firing. 
The bullet goes through Molly and into Bat, lodging in his pelvis. As Bat is falling to the dance hall floor, he draws his six-shooter and fires. Bat's bullet drills King in the heart, and he collapses dead. Molly soon dies, but Bat hangs on through the night and then recovers enough to have the bullet removed. His, his wound was such that it actually punctured his intestine. Uh, and the doctor who examined him said that the only thing that saved his life was the fact that he hadn't eaten anything. Uh, because of that puncture, uh, if any food was in his, his tract, he actually would have uh, succumbed to an infection and most likely killed. Although he needs a cane to walk, two months later, Bat is on the back of a horse riding for Dodge City. In Dodge, Bat joins his younger brother, Jim, as one of the city's deputies. They're both hired by Wyatt Earp, who is chief deputy under Marshal Larry Deeger. Now, in all fairness, you can tell the story of Dodge City without Wyatt Earp. It's not nearly as good of a story, but it can be done. You cannot, however, tell the story of Dodge City without Bat Masterson. And starting in the spring of 1876, when Bat first pinned on a badge in Dodge City, that's where the story really takes off. The 300-pound Deeger, the owner of a saloon, was appointed marshal by the city council principally for political reasons, and most law enforcement is left to Earp, the Mastersons, and other deputies. And you're listening to the story of Bat Masterson, and you're listening to Roger McGrath, who's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And again, McGrath taught history at UCLA, is a former U.S. Marine, and he's a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories, and what a unique voice he has, and what a storyteller he is. And by the way, all of our stories about history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are good in life. And by the way, there are free online courses are available at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And my goodness, there are a dozen plus that are 10 hours long, each of them. And my goodness, you'll learn things you were never taught in college. Let's pick up where we last left off with Roger McGrath. They try to avoid shooting and prefer to use their heavy revolvers to club lawbreakers into submission. For clubbing, Bat uses the cane he has relied on while recovering from his gunshot wound. Here's Bob Bose Bell, executive editor of True West Magazine, and Tom Clavin. And the Cowboys coming up from Texas who had been on the trail for three months, they all got paid and they were going to spend it all in one night, which they usually did. And so for Bat Masterson and Wyatt to be essentially bouncers in a biker bar, it was really intense. Go bunk up and sleep it off. So Bat's first job was at Dodge City, and it was a really daunting challenge for Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, because Dodge City had gotten a reputation as the wickedest town in the American West. I mean, one example of the reputation it had was there was a, a, a story that went around that a very depressed man was sitting on a train, and a conductor was concerned about him, went over and said, uh, so, so buddy, what's the matter? And morosely, the man said, 
I'm going to hell. And after a pause, the conductor said, that'll be $2 and get off at Dodge City. That's the kind of reputation it had. So with Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp, uh, this is where they really solidified becoming best friends. Uh, their job was to try and clean up Dodge City, but do it in a way that they were peace officers, not outgun the bad guys. They had, Dodge City you know, lawmakers had tried that. They'd hired a man as a, to be marshal who just started shooting everything that everybody didn't like. And they quickly realized that was not a way to have a civilized town that people could raise their families. Uh, So with Wyatt and Bat Masterson leading the way, uh, they started to tame Dodge City. They started to arrest people. And one of the things that they can credit themselves with is taking the most wicked town in the American West and turning it into a place that people felt they could raise their families. What the Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson generation represented was was a peace officer. And they took the word peace very seriously. And what was happening with these peace officers, they were forming police departments. They were forming ways of administering a law and order system that didn't include shoot first and ask questions later. In July 1877, Masterson is appointed undersheriff of Ford County, Kansas. The county's principal town is Dodge City. Sheriff Charlie Bassett's second term is up in November, and the state's constitution prohibits him from running for a third consecutive term. Bat decides to run for sheriff. His opponent is Marshal Larry Deeger, who is supported by much of Dodge City's business community. On November 6, Bat ekes out a narrow victory to become sheriff of Ford County. Bat is only 23 years old. Here again is Bill O'Neill. Goodness, he, he was elected by three votes, but he got after it. He was arresting train robbers and horse thieves and jail escapees and confidence men. As sheriff, he was responsible for the whole county. In December, Bat's older brother, Ed, is appointed marshal of Dodge City. The one-two Masterson punch is hard on outlaws. The country was just rife with horse thieves at this point, and that became very well known as the bane of horse thieves uh, across the West. In February 1878, Bat captures two notorious train robbers, and in March, Bat and Ed together capture two more. The Mastersons are taming county and city. But in April, Ed is shot and mortally wounded by an inebriated cowboy he's trying to subdue. Before Ed goes down, he's able to draw his revolver and mortally wound the cowboy, as well as wounding the cowboy's trail boss. In October 1878, Bat leads a posse whose members make it legendary. It all starts when Jim Kennedy, the wild son of powerful Texas cattleman Mifflin Kennedy, makes a nuisance of himself again and again in Dodge City. After being roughed up by deputies for the third or fourth time, Kennedy goes to Dodge Mayor Jim Kelly to complain. Kelly tells Kennedy he got only what he deserved. Kennedy explodes and attacks Kelly, but the mayor thoroughly pummels the young cowboy. Battered and bruised, Kennedy leaves town swearing vengeance. Several weeks later, in the middle of the night, Kennedy returns to Dodge City riding a racehorse. 
he streaks by Mayor Kelly's house, firing a six-shooter into Kelly's bedroom, and the cowboy gallops out of Dodge. Unbeknownst to Kennedy, Kelly is out of town, and he's allowing two actresses to use his house. Kennedy's bullets hit Dora Hand, who is sleeping in Kelly's bed. She dies instantly. Word spreads quickly, and dozens of men volunteer for posse duties. Bat Masterson, as county sheriff, is responsible for organizing the posse. He decides the situation calls for quality, not quantity. He picks former Ford County Sheriff Charlie Bassett and Dodge City deputies Wyatt Earp, Bill Duffy, and Bill Tillman. The local newspaper calls it as intrepid a posse as ever pulled a trigger. Here's Brad Smalley. Legends of the American West, all of them, and all of them tracking down one man. I, I would not want to be in his shoes with names like that tracking down after me, I can tell you that. By the time the posse leaves Dodge, Kennedy has a nearly 10-hour head start. Bat reckons that Kennedy will be racing home to his father's ranch in Texas, but will be taking a circuitous route to avoid detection. This means the posse can catch up with Kennedy at the Cimarron River crossing that Bat thinks the cowboy will take. The chase unfolds as Bat anticipates and the posse is waiting at the crossing when Kennedy arrives. Bat shouts at him to surrender. Instead, Kennedy takes off at a gallop. A bullet from Bat's sharp rifle shatters Kennedy's arm, and bullets from the posse men slam into the horse. Horse and rider crash to the earth. When Bat and the others reach Kennedy, the first words out of his mouth are, did I get that best, Kelly? When they told him that it was in fact Dora that he had killed, his remorse was so great that he told Bat, you should have just killed me. You should have been a better shot and killed me here. Bat then replied, well, I was doing the best that I could. With the days of the Buffalo Hunter over and little need for army scouts, Bat decides to try his luck at gambling for a living. He's successful at his new profession in Dodge City, in Kansas City, and by 1881 in Tombstone, Arizona. And you've been listening to Roger McGrath and a whole posse of storytellers talking about an incredible posse, Roger McGrath and Greg Hengler, who does such great production work here, always give you the best of all the historians in the time period and this American Western life, the frontier life. My goodness, you can paint a picture in your head. It's different than just the movies, right? It's what life looked like without rule of law, folks. When there was a sheriff and maybe that guy could get bought or maybe he was a totalitarian himself and then people just, well, sought justice, quote, the old-fashioned way, unquote. And my goodness, to have lived like this and to try and turn a town like this into a place where you can raise a family, that's no small task. And this was the commission. This was the purpose. But Bat Masterson's actual appearance on the scene to make this a place where families could live as opposed to the stop closest to hell in America. 
Let's return to Roger McGrath for the final portion. Bat's arrival in Tombstone is celebrated by the Earp brothers, Doc Holliday, and other old friends from Dodge City. Bat immediately goes to work as a faro dealer at the Oriental Saloon. Here again are Kathy Alexander, Bill O'Neill, and Brad Smalley. Bat received a telegram from an unsigned person that told him that his brother Jim was in grave danger. At this point, Jim Masterson and A.J. Peacock are partners in the Lady Gay Dance Hall and Saloon in Dodge City. And they got crossways, particularly over a bartender that was hired by Peacock named Al Updegraff. And Updegraff, well, he didn't like Masterson either, and they traded shots. And after that, that's when Jim Masterson telegraphed Bat and said, hey, come join me. Man, I'm having trouble <laughs> out here. Bat received that telegram immediately hopped on a train and traveled about 1,100 miles back to Dodge City. Uh, he had already lost one brother in Dodge City, and despite the fact that he and Jim were not generally on the best of terms, by this point they were somewhat estranged from each other. That was not about to lose another brother. He arrived on the noon train April 16, 1881 at Dodge City. He stepped off the train and he immediately spied Peacock and Updegraff walking together. And the street was crowded, but Bat, boy, he was, he went in battling Bat. He said, I have come over a thousand miles to settle this. I know you're healed, now fight. Well, all three men drew guns and opened fire and everybody scattered. And in fact, one bystander caught a bullet ricochet in the back. Bat hides out on that rail bed, uses that for a kind of a trench, and the two opponents, they took cover behind the jail. <laughs> and then, joining in the fight are two guys on Bat's side, Jim Masterson, and then a friend of his, and they opened fire too, and Al Updegraff caught a bullet in the right lung. And he did not die, but nobody knows who, if Bat shot him or what. Uh, but he but he did survive. After three or four minutes of this firefight, mayor, uh, the mayor of Dodge City and the county sheriff marched onto the scene brandishing shotguns. That stopped the fight. Uh, Bat paid a fine of eight dollars <laughs> for carrying a weapon, and he uh, he caught train and left town. And that was his last that was his last gunfight. Well, Jim, I say it's about time we get the hell out of Dodge. Bat took that very hard. Because of his code of conduct, it was important to him that people respected him, and they respected him for the right reasons, not so much because he was a good gunfighter, but because he was an honest man. Bat spends most of the next decade as a professional gambler in Denver. It's in Denver in 1888 that Bat buys the Palace Theater, which features a variety of acts and high-stakes gambling. One of the performers at the palace is singer and dancer Emma Walters. After many girlfriends, Bat ties the knot with Emma and remains married to her for the rest of his life. Here's Bill O'Neill. About a decade or so later, he's getting his reputation has become unsavory in um, in Denver, and he decides in 1902 to move to New York City. He had already visited there a time or two, long enough to get arrested for carrying a concealed weapon, 
you know, he was looked on with a sharp eye by law enforcement officials. That's almost 50 years old, and the Old West is gone. He goes to work writing a column called Masterson's Views on Timely Topics for the New York Morning Telegraph. Here again is Tom Clavin. Hearing the rest of Bat Masterson's story, many people wonder how in the world did he end up in New York City as a reporter the last 15 years of his life. What happened was, during the 1880s, while Bat was a federal marshal, he had encountered a young man named Theodore Roosevelt who was trying to be a cowboy in the Dakotas. And during the two years that Roosevelt was there, unsuccessfully being a rancher, uh, he and Bat Masterson became friends. Years later, Bat Masterson was turning 50 and Theodore Roosevelt was in the White House as President of the United States. And Masterson wrote to Roosevelt expressing his concerns that somebody might come along who's only half his age and with a gun and decide, I'm going to make my reputation as a gunfighter by killing one of the most legendary figures of the Wild West. So Bat said, basically, I've got to find a new line of work. Roosevelt suggested, why don't you come to New York? I'll make you the deputy U.S. Marshal for Manhattan. Bat packed up his wife and his other belongings, got on a train, and off they went to New York City, where he was a gun-toting federal marshal in New York. While Bat was in New York as a U.S. deputy marshal, he was contributing to some of the local newspapers there, and one publisher of the New York Tribune came to Bat and said, you're so good at this. Uh, why don't you write for me on a regular basis? So Bat Masterson became a New York City journalist, a newspaper reporter, and columnist. He wrote about the three things he cared about the most in New York, boxing, baseball, and Broadway. He wrote his columns that became very popular. I mean, Bat Masterson had a whole second life of fame as a newspaper columnist in New York City. And he was quite the bon vivant man about town, too, because he liked to go to the ball games, New York Giants baseball, see a Broadway play, go to the horse track, cover a boxing match. And then he would uh, bang out his column and then hold court at one of his favorite saloons, which was on 44th Street and Broadway. And... Uh, by holding court, I mean, people enjoyed asking him questions, buying him drinks. Uh, he would tell stories. Now, of course, by this point in his life, now we're talking about the period essentially 1906, 07 to 1921. And by that point in his life, many of the stories about Bat had been fictionalized, embellished, exaggerated. Uh, for example, the gun he carried supposedly had somewhere between 22 and 26 notches on it, each one representing an outlaw he had dispatched. Inevitably, every so often when Bat was holding court at his favorite saloon, some out-of-town rube would show up. He'd encounter, oh my goodness, it's the famous legendary Bat Masterson from the Wild West. And he would ask, can I see your gun? And Bat would reluctantly produce the gun. Sure enough, there's a whole bunch of notches in it. And uh, almost without fail, the topic would turn to, can I buy the gun? Uh, you know, Mr. Masterson, if I headed back to where I came from in Indiana, Pennsylvania, Ohio, wherever, and I had the gun that helped tame the West, I would become the big man of my town. I would become famous. And Bat would say, no, no, of course not. Uh, this gun, you know, obviously it's a very important gun. I can't just give it away even for a few dollars. But negotiations would take place, and eventually the price got to one that Bat would approve of, and he would sell the gun, but he would tell the guy... Listen, you have to leave town right away. Wherever the first train is out of New York, you take it and go home. 
because it would get me in a lot of trouble if you're staying around here telling people you bought my gun. All right, I, I, I wouldn't sell it to anybody else. I sold it to you. Be happy. Leave town. And the guy would leave town. And then back the next day, would go to his favorite pawn shop, buy a similar gun, cut some notches in it, put it back in his holster, and he's ready for the next fella from out of town to come to his saloon. Uh, he became a, a father figure to some of the young reporters, some of the up-and-coming people. Damon Runyon, he was a young man who was a reporter for the New York uh, Tribune. And he really worshipped Bat Masterson. And um, years later, he paid homage to Bat uh, when he wrote a series of stories about uh, you know New York life and characters and show business and Broadway and gamblers. And uh, eventually became Guys and Dolls. And some people might recall that uh, of the two main characters, one of them was called Sky Masterson. And that was a direct tribute to his, his, uh, his mentor, Bat Masterson. Late in October 1921, Bat is at his desk writing his newspaper column when he dies of a heart attack. He's a month shy of his 68th birthday. Uh, he died a, a, a journalist's death, or what maybe a kind of death many journalists would like to have. It was in 1921, and he was sitting at his desk at the uh, New York Tribune building, and he had just banged out his last column, and he typed 30 at the bottom, which for those not in the journalism business, 30 means you're done. That's it. And uh, he was indeed done. Bat had a sudden massive heart attack, slumped over his typewriter, and died at his desk. More than 500 people attend his funeral. One of those eulogizing Bat is Damon Runyon, who says... He was a 100% 22-carat real man. Bat was a good hater and a wonderful friend. He was always stretching out his hand to some down-and-outer. He had a great sense of humor and a marvelous fund of reminiscence and was one of the most entertaining companions we have ever known. There are only too few men in the world like Bat Masterson. And his death is a genuine loss. And a special thanks to Greg Hengler for the production on that piece. And a thanks always to Roger McGrath for the unique and excellent work he does for us. Again, he is the author of Gunfighters, Howmen, and Vigilantes. And he is a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA. And Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries. You can see him practically all the time there. And he's a regular contributor for us here at Our American Stories. And my goodness, what a turn of events. I mean, to go from Dodge City to New York City, a very different kind of town, and to become a prolific writer that would influence someone like Damon Runyon? My goodness, it doesn't get better than that as storytelling. And that the last thing he did was type the number 3-0. As a columnist, I know what that means. I write for Newsweek every week. We don't do that anymore because we don't type anything. But I know what it means. And what a remarkable way to leave this world if you are a columnist. Pound out or ground out the last one and die at the desk. <laughs> the remarkable story of Bat Masterson, the man who forever changed the American West, here on Our American Stories.